I'm Commander Shepard, and BGS is my favorite radio show on the Citadel. Here's Video Game Sophistry, your one-stop shop for video games, news, reviews, and time-wasting fun. It's video game time, folks. Andy Burkowski here for VGS. Joins by this week, Mr. Zach Fanny, Mr. Liam Brands, the man pressing the buttons and listening to my abuse, Thomas Hyde. Ladies and gentlemen, VGS, round of applause for you guys. Away from the mics if possible. We are nearing closer and closer to Christmas. Fortunately, in the video game world, most of those Christmas treats have been out for the last month. So pretty much the best of the best of 2016 is already here and we got to see some of the best of the best ideally 2017 and 2018 the playstation experience hit us all up uh, last week so we're going to talk extensively about that later in the show executive producer of a video game magazine i don't know if you guys remember those but they were popular in the <laughs> 90s no it's actually game informer the executive editor andrew reiner is here and he's going to talk all about how he was able to take a magazine that people usually, you know, read when they're in the bathroom to some of the most cutting-edge journalism uh, in the field. And when you think about it, too, it's kind of interesting. A lot of newspapers and other mainstream pieces of media want to figure out how to keep things going with a newspaper in actual tangible form. And the world of video games figured it out. Imagine that. And then later in the show as well, after that, Richard Jellison the uh, the man himself will be joining us for his Dead Rising 4 review. He spent a lot of time with the game, kind of an unreasonable amount of time. With we the don't game. know where he is, though. No, no, he's still playing somewhere. somewhere. So he's, what's that? Somewhere. He is somewhere. Well, I hope so, because he nearly worked himself to death with that. He has a lot of stuff to say. If you've been on our YouTube page, you probably participated in some of the Canada hate for the ending of Dead Rising 4. Ooh. There's been a lot of just comments that say, I hate you, Canada. We saw one, <laughs> Liam, yeah, we saw one that said, we hate Canadian hipsters. Yeah, yeah, I was like, this is what happens when you give the game to Canadian hipsters and they it's ruin me it. me personally. Yeah. We, we thought it was Richard. They were attacked. talking about Richard, but it wasn't. They were talking. Oh. <laughs> Apparently there's one guy in particular they're really targeting. I haven't um, really discovered his, his who name it Richard? is. <laughs> no, it's I actually think it's like the game the director. They're calling him a, a new male of sorts really just what is that, that? i don't know and and you right i've seen yeah. it but i don't know what that means uh, we might be saying something offensive so i need to take a no, quick no look. it's it's just kind of like a generalization of a new generation of males that are like very oh. liberal leaning and youtubers oh and stuff like god that. Yeah. is it like it's new like, metal no uh, it's not new metal no, uh, not nearly as bad if you guys <laughs> want uh, the urban dictionary does have Perfect. a uh, you know where we look for our knowledge a new male is a specific type of beta male that surfaced in the late two uh, 2010s and it's attempting to redefine what manhood means, specifically white male manhood. So essentially, people that call use the word new male are like the worst. Yeah. All I right. think we can agree on that. Show about video games. Show about video games. So uh, <laughs> have you guys been playing any games? Oh, I'm getting really into Titanfall 2. What? I know. I don't play any shooters ever. Professor Fanny. I know. Don't tell late me. Late in the game on that one. I finally bought Civ 6 last night. I'm really, really excited. I cried when it started because I've just I've been waiting. So were for you so a long. Civ fan before that? I've, no, never heard of it before. <laughs> I have way too many hours sunk into mm -hmm. Civ Five. So. Uh, yeah, oh no, love Civ Six. I've been playing. I got like tons of hours on that. 
But after the Game Awards, I went and I bought myself pretty much everything that was up for like best indie game. I've been playing a little bit of Hyperlight Drifter, Ori in oh. the Blind Forest, I think was a oh, couple a years ago. Yeah. Uh, got uh, Oxenfree, Orwell, and uh, That Dragon Cancer. You play, you play Orwell? Uh, haven't yet, but uh, I really Damn do, it, Liam. I really do like the idea. I've just been kind of caught up in Oxenfree. It's pretty cool. Because next week we might have those guys on the show that made Orwell. Ooh. And yeah, they they sound like... Some really cool new males, so I really want to talk about. <laughs> Andy, stop. No, I'm trying to reappropriate it. Anyways, um, <laughs> we're taking it back. So yeah, we're actually playing some indies, some some big ass titles, and Civ Six. It's so weird that it's taking you this long because it was like your favorite game ever, Thomas. Uh, it's been like it's been finals, and I've been yeah. having money stuff, but I'm not having money stuff anymore. Don't boys. need to talk about that now. So uh, a lot of exciting stuff. Uh, thank you guys for asking me what I've been playing. Really appreciate it. What, what have you been, been playing, playing Andy? Orwell? Oh, what have I? No, actually, this is kind of weird, but if you haven't checked it out yet, the Warhammer game for PC is oh, yeah. uh, the Total War Warhammer mm -hmm. game. They have a new DLC out that deals with wood elves, so I'm doing that sexy business. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, so we got a big show lined up. A lot of, uh, yeah, I'm trying to make wood elves sexy. Thomas is dying. Yeah. What elves? What elves, man? Uh, I'm trying to make it good. Uh, make sure you check out this online if you haven't. Video Game Sophistry on the YouTubes. I promise you this content will eventually get there. And we got to take a bit of a break now. When we come back, news of the week, classic, classic news of the week, some Dead Rising business, and of course, finish off the day with Andrew Reiner from Game Informer. Take a quick break. We'll be back after this. You're listening to VGS on Talk Radio, AM 640. Back here with that classic Dead Rising track, alluding to a review we'll have uh, later in the show. Again, big talk about that game that hasn't really blown up like I guess it should have. Well, maybe not. I don't. Games that are themed for a season are always pretty niche. I don't know. What are some other seasonal games that you guys can think of? Anything that comes to mind? I didn't know those existed. Well, even the blood and wine is a little bit Christmassy, isn't it? Or festive -y? Not at all? Not really. It's, not even a little bit? It's not related to a holiday, no. No. I remember World of Warcraft doing that really well. Oh, yeah, like their holiday events? Yeah. Yeah, MMOs always have yeah. great holiday events. But Every MMO, or I expect Overwatch will do something like that, too. Like, I think they are, aren't they? They have some like, set up I played like yesterday, and there wasn't, but they did, like, a Halloween it, thing. They did, like, an Olympics thing. They'll do this. You know what You know what had great holiday stuff that wasn't an MMO? What's that? Animal Crossing. Okay, so <laughs> Dead Rising is a game, a big budget game that sticks with Christmas, which is very, very odd, very niche. It seems like they're really pushing to get those Christmas dollars from people that uh, are looking for a game. It's an established name, though, already. Yeah, it is an established name, but uh, we'll we'll talk about it a little later. I think they kind of lost a lot of the stuff that I love about Dead Rising and that maybe a lot of other people didn't, the things that are punishing about it. Uh, there's an old interview we did at um, X16 where I talked to the guy that I think everyone hates now, that Canadian dude. That's um, <laughs> the, the new boy. The, yeah, the new boy. Yeah, the terror. Yeah, that was really, it. New man. The derogatory. New male. New male. New man is Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> the very derogatory term that we are using in irony. Yeah. Uh, if it's targeting yeah. white males, is it really that derogatory? No, no. But it's. I think it's white males saying it to other yeah. white males, yeah, being true. like, "You are not. You're ruining it for us, white males." Yeah. 
Either way, it's awful. But I remember asking him, like, yeah, are you going to bring back all of, like, the punishing timer and how difficult the game was and how it was really hard to do everything perfectly? And he just flat looked me in the face and said, no, it's going to be just really easy and fun and sandboxy because that's what people want. I don't think that's what people want from their Dead Rising game. Oh, on the contrary, I see a lot of su- stuff that says Damn like, Liam. "Oh, you know, it, it like it may be buggy, but at least they got rid of that timer." Like people really hated the timer, man. People are idiots. Next up, <laughs> news of the week. This week in gaming. I've got to do the show! Sony's 2016 PSX conference dropped some major bombs on Saturday night. We saw some new titles unveiled such as Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite and Dreadnought. We also saw remasterings of PlayStation classics like Crash Bandicoot and Parappa the Rapper. The moment that blew the pants off of everyone was easily the jaw-dropping teaser trailer for The Last of Us 2, which left everyone either cheering or crying, or both. I'm gonna find and I'm gonna kill every last one of them. It seems Capcom is taking a return to form. After the reveal of Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite at PSX last weekend, the company says it wants to focus on new entries and IPs that haven't exactly seen the light of day in some time, such as Marvel vs. Capcom. Hey, I freaking love Street Fighter! Autograph your spleen for me? Whether or not this includes ports of older titles, such as the Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 port on PS4, one has to wonder what we could be seeing from Capcom in the near future. Only time will tell from Capcom. Some potentially very bad news for anyone with a regular PS4. Despite Sony's promises that the PS4 Pro is only an optional upgrade for hardcore gamers, the performance of recent releases have been suggesting otherwise. While Final Fantasy XV's performance isn't the best, The Last Guardian is borderline unplayable unless you own a PS4 Pro. Reportedly, the regular PS4 struggles to hit 30 frames per second at best. Yikes. I've already pushed myself. To the brink of death. Haven't you always wanted to play your favorite retro games in 4K? This era in gaming is referred to by historians as the Golden Age. Introducing the Retro Engine Sigma from independent game developer Diodo. The Retro Engine Sigma is capable of playing Atari 2600 titles, Sega Genesis titles, NES titles, and more. The system is available on Indiegogo.com in both a 16 and 32 gigabyte set for $59 and $69 USD respectively with 15 pre-installed titles. It's a convenient way to relive all those memories of playing games from your childhood and at a stunning 4K resolution, all tightly bundled in a brand new plug-and-play experience. Back here again, Crash is coming back with the Insane Trilogy. That's, That's a remake. Insane, man. It is insane. Remake <laughs> of Crash Bandicoot, Crash Bandicoot 2, Cortex Strikes Back, which I remember is like my favorite one. All but three not of those Crash Bash. No, it's not I'm included. I'm personally upset about it. Oh, yeah. you wanted that? You know, I, I had a lot of fun times with friends let's, playing Crash Bash. Let's up this a bit. Listen to this nonsense. Let's just hear it some more. God, that is very iconic. It is pretty good. All right, put it down a little bit. Yeah, I think that is maybe one of the only remakes I've been very, very excited really? about. Oh, you had no childhood. No, I love them, but I mean, why not make a new Crash Bandicoot game? Well, I don't know. I think the system worked really well. It doesn't need to be like an open world crash. No. The the lines really work. <laughs> no I timers. Think, yeah, they're helping. No timers. Yeah, they're helping with the controls. <laughs> Damn it, Liam. 
Hold up, bank. Banks for all the wumpa fruit. No, this is about jumping on boxes and trying not to fall into pits and screaming burka when you get a mask on. Yeah, I feel I feel like if you make a new crash that. game at this point, it's gonna end up like uh, Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. Like or nobody like wants it. Knack. Oh yeah, totally. Like, so I think uh, remaking the originals probably the best thing they could have done. All this new male nonsense. Okay. Stop. With that. So be I'm. Game. We talked a little bit. You guys, we got Fanny not as excited. Me and Liam off the wall. Well, I think oh, this would be sure. great. <laughs> Honestly, like, don't you see this as part of the uh, this system where we're being marketed our childhoods back to us? Yes. And this is part yeah, of this? this is now my turn. Everyone else got their turn. Okay. Everyone else had their turn. They had their ducktails. Right. They had their weird Asian stuff that I couldn't relate to. Pokemon Shenmue. came back. Yeah, I don't want I don't want that. Last Guardian, who cares? This is for me, damn okay. it. When does Andy get his turn? Okay, okay. Put it it's like that. weird when you said weird Asian stuff. You looked right at me. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> okay, so pretty excited about Yeah, well, that's a fair assessment, but I, I think they're going to be realistic with it. I don't think it's going to be a $60 title or an $80 title. I think it's going to be less expensive, and for what I've seen so far, they're not saying, like, whoa, it's a cool remaster. It's just, hey, the graphics are going to be better. Controls are going to work a little well. Have you seen the gameplay? Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely more than a, a remaster. They're doing kind of what a... Um Odd World was the mm-hmm. series, yeah. Where with like new and tasty, they like reskin the whole thing, and like everything looks like almost completely different. It could hold up its own as like a PS4 but game. But it about. looks All like right. the, yeah, but it looks like the same story. I mean, like, oh, they're oh not, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's the same game completely, but it's more than just like hey, we upped the resolution mm-hmm. and made the colors like a little bit brighter. Like it's a full retexturing yeah. and everything. I think it's kind of at least graphically what they're ideally going to do with Final Fantasy VII. That's kind of what it reminded me mm-hmm. of. Yeah, more of a remake than, yeah. a, than a remaster. Yeah. Which is, you know, if they're going to do that, I would prefer that than taking Crash and trying to supplement him in some insane, weird story fit for 2016. Like, he's okay. he's good in our childhood and in our memories. Let's give him a full story, but, like, the unique one that he started with. We don't need to see him in Skylanders or something like that. I kind of want to see Crash deal with, like, a moral dilemma of, like, all the people he's jumped on and killed. <laughs> That's a nice He's haunted by the dreams of yeah. Crash people. Story. Yeah. Addicted to heroin. Crash realized <laughs> he was really spinning away from his past. <laughs> All right, that was that really landed. Um, the next big <laughs> title that's coming up in this, actually, no. Before we get to that, I think we should talk about a news story that um, Liam touched on back in News of the Week. A lot of people really, really excited and happy with Final Fantasy 15 and Last Guardian. It, they're getting very good reviews, not terrible by any means. When you have two titles that were, I don't know, close to ten, maybe fifteen years in the making in some cases. How long was Last Guardian in the making, Liam? Uh, about ten years, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and similar to Final Fantasy, ten years as well. So oh, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to have um any the expectations for that were so high that it'd be difficult to reach them. And I think Final Fantasy fifteen got pretty close. Last Guardian maybe did, but a lot of people are saying that if you own a PlayStation four, which it is a PlayStation exclusive, if you own a PlayStation four you are not able to get the full Last Guardian experience. You, in fact, need to have a PlayStation Pro. Yeah, more or less. It's more like uh, if you have a regular PS4, it's near unplayable. It's really like, okay, depending on how much you're 
bothered by frame rates, but mm. it's it drops down to like 10, 20 frames per, spe- oh. uh, per second more often than it's sitting at 30. Like it struggles to So when you're 30. watching that for people that aren't um, tuned to that, basically there's some choppy moments when things yeah, are really not moving. slows sm- down yeah. and just, yeah, it, it looks really unpleasant and sluggish and it doesn't kind of respond in that, you know, immediate tight way that we expect games to now. I think the most distressing thing about this was initially when we were billed the PlayStation Pro, it was always the messaging from Sony that this will not be a new console. This is just meant for people that have a cool-ass 4K TV and want to take advantage. You know, there's more uh, gigaflops or whatever they were. Do you remember they're called? Teraflops. Teraflops. Gigaflops. Come on. What a fool. <laughs> uh, there's more teraflops. It will have your HDR. It'll work with a 4K TV, but it's not a new console. Now we're starting to realize that designers and developers are taking advantage of that new software to make games that do more and leaving normal PS4 players in the dust. What are we to do? None of us here have a PlayStation Pro. What are we to do? Well, it's it's kind of like, you know, it doesn't always happen in uh, in gaming where they, they cater to the highest denominator. Like if you tell developers, okay, you're, you're going to have more power and more ability, that's where they're going to gear their games towards. So it's kind of, even if we were promised that, oh, it's not a new version of a console is, you know, be interchangeable. We know that's not going to happen. Well, I guess they would have to, right? Right, if they're, yeah. If they're making a like, game. Put sliders like you got in PC games. That's a that's a fair ah. thought. You and, know, and we it, don't, it, yeah, they're becoming more like PCs. We don't have know? that just, in consoles. Just a toggle that's PS4 Pro or PS4. Well, they have that with, like, HDR with certain games. I don't know that's if you guys true, have played, yeah. like, in even The Last of Us, the oh, old yeah. one. Great. You can toggle on and off HDR or um, same thing with Final Fantasy. In the new uh, Tomb Ra- Rise of the Tomb Raider, uh, they had that as well where it was more like you could turn off. It, there were just two options where you could sacrifice some graphical fidelity for better performance or just get the best graphics and maybe deal with some frame rate, uh, frame rate uh, dips. And I that, think that's a pretty good idea. It's very interesting because that is essentially the PC life that yeah. us PC gamers have had to deal with since time immemorial of do we really want to push the car? Do we really want this to look amazing, but only when it's still... I guess, you know, finally, this is kind of a really nefarious thing that Sony did. If it happens with more games, then I think we really have some important questions we have to ask Sony. Christmas season's coming up. We have to wrap this one up. We're going to keep talking about the PlayStation experience. Liam, we'll go through each one really quickly. What do you suggest people do? that have a PlayStation 4 and want to get the greatest gaming experience? You know, my, my gut instinct is just to say, go over to PC, save yourself, like, the inconsistency, the struggle. But, you know, that's obviously not the most uh, fiscally uh, sound option. Uh, maybe be verbal with Sony, because even if it's unintentional, it is a kind of nefarious result that you're going to have to upgrade at some point. And I'm moving towards PC, so I'm kind of with Liam on that one. I say bite the bullet, trade up. You want the PlayStation Pro anyway. Big business forever. We'll be back after this. <laughs> You're listening to VGS on Talk Radio, AM 640. Back again here on VGS with Liam's favorite theme. Crash Bash. Gotta be. Uh, we're talking a lot about the PlayStation experience that happened last week. Tons of games to go over. It's actually Wrath of Cortex. Oh, then they use the same one for you Crash. Fool. It was my cell phone ringtone for <laughs> You fool. Joined again Fake by <laughs> Fake friend. Joined again by Liam, Zach, and of course, uh, Thomas. I'm not going to say anything else. Uh, so yeah, we talked a lot about Crash and how exciting that was. There are a bunch of other games that were released uh, during that cool little expo. It was weird because they had the Game Awards, and then a couple days later, 
They had uh, the PlayStation Experience, all the exclusives. Which I is more really... exciting. Yeah, a little yeah. bit, yeah. Because what did we see at the Game Awards? Embarrassment. Yeah. Kojima. Uh, Prey and Kojima. Anthropomorphic sure. Shaver. Razor. Oh, Bravo yeah, Steel. of course. The yeah. Shick Man. He's going to get schooled. Hydrobot. Hydrobot, no. Yeah, PlayStation Experience is pretty cool because we got to see some real big games we're excited about. I think we kind of narrowed it down. We talked about Crash Bash. Let's deal with, um, I think, one of the games that is the biggest. You're late. I thought you were professional. Oh, you should relax. You'll live longer. Uncharted The Lost Legacy. What? Yes. Remember uh, Last of Us, fellows? Yep. And the... Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to get to that. Okay. There was a... Zach, just skipping over the prep. There was a DLC that came with that that was called... Does anyone remember? Uh, Ellie and the her first. friend in a mall. Nope. But it was a standalone <laughs> adventure looking at uh, Ellie's past and kind of how this character came to be that you could have on its own. You didn't have the game to play. Uncharted The Lost Legacy is pretty much the same thing, but it's following the characters Chloe and Nadia, which is kind of interesting. I remember them briefly from the game. You guys are big Uncharted fans. Yeah, so. Chloe wasn't in the fourth one at all, but Nadia was like kind of one of the main She was villains. in the multiplayer. <laughs> Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Actually. She was a skin. <laughs> Well, no, what do you guys think about it? Because I, I tried to get into that game. I, I enjoyed it, but I don't think I actually finished it. Will on me. Really? I Okay, stop oh, yelling. Oh, come on. Uh, I think the character oh, choices are kind of a little weird, but I'm always up for more Uncharted. Really? No, I, I think it's great. Like the um, uh, Last of Us Left Behind is the expansion. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Behind, yeah. So Left Behind was amazing, and Uncharted 4 was amazing. So this is going to be, guess what, amazing. It, it really was. Yeah. From what I played and got through, I'm still a great game, but I thought it was fantastic. But these two characters to focus on, I don't know about that. I, I think it's great because um, they're not as fleshed out in the games mm -hmm. themselves. So this is a perfect, perfect opportunity to do that. We don't need to flesh out characters that we know already. Uh, and, and especially because Chloe's been in the franchise for like so long, and we've never actually really gotten a full backstory or seen her yeah. develop that much. Like we have seen Elena, and Nadia is a new character who I think is like really badass and really interesting, okay, and we Liam, could probably get like a lot out Liam, of that. Liam, the adventures of Sully and Sam. Right, not out of the picture yet. The adventures of Sully and Sam. Two DLCs young, could happen. Young Sully, but we. Yeah. Come on, those characters and how I even I know that More how they left white that off. Men, Andy. <laughs> all right, all right. We got that's representation. True. That's here. true. Uh oh, <laughs> hands up. That is absolutely, absolutely true. That instead of looking at a gritty, nuanced portrayal of Chloe and uh, Nadia, who's a black woman, I want two white men on an Indiana Jones adventure. <laughs> yeah. We damn it, already got that. <laughs> God really damn. Nice. You're right. It is a lot of the same thing, but uh, I think they narratively set that up a lot more seamlessly. But I know what you mean, but you can al almost see what that game would be like because we know those characters and love them so much. Like, this is surprising. It's new. I'm really intrigued. I think it could be kind of happened. like evil, though, considering those characters' backstories and what they've been through. I think it could be something really, uh, you know, pushing the boundaries a little bit. All, all of it's going to be great. We all yeah. love Uncharted, but um, sticking with. Naughty Dog. That really is. I don't think they won for a best studio of the year. That's they won Wars. best narrative. Yeah, I think, and also Nolan North got like best performance. Yeah, too. and that was a great thing. You can check it all out. Video game sophistry online. We got it all up there. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Just I just mumbled some just burps. Yeah. yeah, I just burped some uh, taglines. One thing happened though that we wanted for a very, very long time. No, I can't walk. 
on the path of the right Cause I'm lost That is Ellie. That is Last of Us 2. Oh, man. So we got to see... So all right, keep it in your pants for a second. We all got right. to see uh, a real trailer, a real announcement of The Last of Us Part 2. It's not actually called The Last of Us 2. They're calling it Part 2 because in the words of Neil Druckmann, that uh, the original Last of Us, the first act, was essentially a story of love. And what he's used to describe Last of Us Part 2, this is a story about hate now. Mm-hmm. They wanted to explore those themes about what it means to really hate. And there's a great about 30-minute talk after the trailer where Neil and the actors that were involved talked about what that meant. And it was breathtaking. Zach, um, when we started this show years ago, when we first started this idea, one of the first things we got to do was a big talk that Neil did yeah. at the IGDA Awards or the, in Toronto. And it was incredible. It was one of the most yeah. amazing things I've ever seen. Yeah, and he, he shows that he really understands how to communicate fundamental truths about human existence like zeroing in on a relationship and what that means to those two characters and developing a theme of love uh between them and so the fact that he's switching gears and focusing on you know the antithesis of that i think is going to be fascinating it's he's so disciplined that i don't see how this can really go wrong no i think it's going to be uh fascinating especially because there's so much potential there we could uh I don't know if I want to uh, spoil the ending of The Last of Us, but we could see some certain things come back to bite some certain people in the behind uh, and in a very uh, kind of volatile sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one minute left before we get a, a cut out of here for a break. We don't have one minute left. Uh, I think it's important that we do. We have less than a minute left. Finally, I think we both need to say very quickly that the trailer that we saw in The Last of Us 2 compared to the trailer that we saw for Death Stranding million times better. Oh, come on. More than it million times better. It shows cause effect storytelling. Like, here is why Ellie is in this position. We understand what's happening. But it's an established happening. series. The it doesn't matter. Even if you mysterious. didn't have that reference, that is how you make art. That's how you make a story. Yeah, All right. Whatever. He's upset. That means we got to go. we back <laughs> up to this. You're listening to VGS on Talk Radio, AM 640. Well, do we have that bit, Thomas? No, we do not. Okay, great. Uh, this is BGS <laughs> again, talking about games. We talked about the PlayStation experience. Now it's time to dive into Dead Rising 4. Uh, very quickly, of course, Zach, Liam, Thomas are here with me, Andy. Have you guys played the Dead Rising games at all? Uh, some of the old ones, yes. Yeah? yeah? I've dabbled here and there. Dabbled. I played the first one extensively. So this latest one, as we'll hear in the review coming up from old uh, Richie Gels, kind of does away with a lot of the traditional mechanics. The uh, the timer, a lot of the punishing survivor stuff. It's a it's sandbox game, essentially. But we did figure out that the ending of the game is not actually the ending intended by the creators. There's going to be a Frank Rising or something of that tune. DLC that will continue the story and give an alternate kind of ending because it's very final. We don't want to spoil it. Liam said he would get very upset. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. What do we all think about the idea that a DLC for a game, let's use The Witcher 3 as an example, a big narrative story. Let's say Geralt dies at the end of The Witcher 3, just for an instance. It doesn't happen. Imagine if the next DLC was, but wait, he comes out of the ashes and needs to kill the person that killed him. Zach, you're shaking your head. 
Now it removes you know any kind of sense of stake from the previous story, and it kind of flies in the face of what good DLCs do, which is added another additional dimension on top of or underneath an existing narrative. So it kind of just makes it pointless, you know, the story pointless in the in the first game. It becomes like Dragon Ball Z. People die and then they come back to life, and it never really actually matters. Nothing, yeah, yeah nothing you have matters. To pay for them to come back to life. Yeah. It's that, nihilistic. Maybe, what if it wasn't like? What if it wasn't a paid DLC and it was kind of like a quirky alternative universe kind of thing? Because this is a very quirky game. Like a Far Cry type thing. Kind of. This was like, Yeah, no, that, yeah, a like, Blood Dragon DLC yeah. sort of thing. Well, yeah, if but, it was like that, then maybe. But what? If, oh, first of all, you should just you should should not undermine the main narrative of your own game. Like that's I don't know why you would do that. So if if what you're alluding to is that they do not end the story at the end of Dead Rising 4 and instead you get the end of the story in this DLC, make Dead Rising 5. Really? Right? Like, don't yeah. make a DLC, make another game or put the ending of the game in Dead Rising 4. This it's reminds me of the, That idea doesn't have enough legs to survive as its own game, but it should just be like, I don't know, like... It could be its own DLC, but it shouldn't be like the definitive good ending that you get. You yeah. should have still your good and your bad endings that the series has always offered. That seems to be the chief complaint that you, the series traditionally had a multitude of endings based on your different rankings, and now this one is kind of just the worst bad ending. But no I want to how hard you work. Yeah, no matter uh, Richard, eighty hours, he's crying. Now imagine <laughs> this though: Do you think that this game kind of gets a pass? Because it doesn't have the narrative weight of a Witcher 3 or a Mass Effect. That it is so quirky and weird and alternative. Do you think that maybe some of these things don't apply? I don't really think that's an excuse. Just fundamentally, it doesn't. If you're going to have a story in a game, whether it's like, you know, Faulkner or like the most throwaway story ever. like Faulkner video games. (laughs) If you're going to have a story in a game, have a story in a game, have a beginning and an end. Unless you plan on sequels. Don't that yeah um it's no excuse no excuse even if it's weird and wacky and no no but that that's great but that doesn't mean that you again undermine your narrative like even with mm-hmm. far cry the far cry games there's a sardonic point to it all they're mm-hmm. making a critique right even if you're going to do weird then do weird nothing that we've heard from the dlc is that it's really going to apply or add anything that's really interesting to the dynamic uh red dead redemption did a very great it's literally what this is exactly except it's not like Oh, actually, wow! It is almost exactly the same as what it's this is. It's literally what we're alluding to right now. Wow, Liam th- Brand, that was great. That was awesome, though. It was awesome, <laughs> but they knew this was wacky and different. It went from a western game to a zombie uh, Marston coming out of the grave, needing to kill the people that killed him. And it him wasn't grave. an alternate ending, too. It was yeah, just like distinct. an alternate universe yeah, yeah. It, where it's just like this happens, and, and it's on not even on the same timeline. But it's not like oh, you have to deal with uh, John dying. But if you want a, like the real ending that we want, you got to buy this DLC. Like that's ridiculous. All right, I think we do need to learn a little bit more about the game. Uh, coming up right now, we got good old Richie Jowls tell you all about Dead Rising Four. Watch out for the end, though. Dead Rising 4 is the latest in the zombie series by Capcom, this time starring fan favorite and original main character Frank West. He's back, everybody. I've covered wars, you know. This time around, Frank has a new bunch of toys to play with. Taking a cue from Dead Rising 3, you're able to make dozens of combo weapons from various parts lying around, filling your inventory with a veritable arsenal of handmade zombie-killing tools, like a sledgehammer covered in grenades or a sword made completely out of ice. Speaking of, new is the addition of the exosuit, 
modular power armor that lasts for about two real-time minutes, but lets you devastate the enemies around you. There's five different upgrades for these armors scattered across the map, and you really feel invincible when you put one of these bad boys on. Overall, the whole experience has been streamlined. For example, survivors now go to safe houses by themselves instead of needing to be escorted by Frank himself. So that means they don't just die. You can make any combo weapon out in the field by having one of the pieces in your inventory and standing over the other and holding down the B button. And finally, starting a side mission doesn't feel like you're wasting any of your precious time. And speaking of time, this game does away with that ticking clock of doom that the previous games featured. No longer do you feel like you only have a few days or even a week's time to complete as many objectives as possible to get that best ending. Fantastic! So you can mess around as much as you possibly want, finding all the blueprints or collectibles and getting as many achievements as you possibly can. Now, you can do objectives in any order with no penalty, so the game feels truly open world and lends everything it has to help you feel like you can do anything in the town of Willamette. It was because of this that felt like I was enjoying this a lot more than I did Dead Rising 3. And as I approached a door that warned me that I wouldn't be able to return from the endgame, I wondered just how everything was going to be tied up. But then the ending happens. You go through a boss fight, a huge seven or eight minute slog through giant zombie horde fighting. Without spoilers, after the final cutscene, I sat there dumbfounded and wanting, honestly, a lot more. The problem is, this is what other Dead Rising games would consider to be the bad ending. And at the time, I couldn't just Google it to find out how to get the good ending. But eventually, it just boiled down to DLC. The Frank Rising DLC, which is of course a part of the season's pass, will give you 24 extra in-game hours to escape, find answers, and finally get what would be that good ending. But it's just wrong. Other Capcom games like Asura's Wrath did this, and it's a cheap practice. It isn't fair to the really huge fans of this series who supported it from day one, who were looking forward to this game for months. But I mean, what do I know? I only invested 80 hours into a game from a series I love. But besides the ending issues, I really did enjoy Dead Rising 4, and I'd be happy to give it a solid 8 out of 10. I'm Richard, and that's how I feel about Dead Rising 4. VGS will be back right after this. Here on VGS, we spend a lot of time looking at the latest and greatest in video game. We have the advantage of the internet and a great access point to you guys. For a long time, though, there was only one way that you could get access to new news in the video game world. It was to pick up a copy of Game Informer. It was essentially the one place that you could find that information as a young kid that didn't have the bevy of knowledge and information coming from the online world. Today we're speaking with Andrew Reiner, the executive editor at Game Informer, all about that kind of journey and uh, how they're still pushing out great stuff. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Okay, so just to start off, people that aren't aware of exactly what Game Informer is, there's so many different options there for uh, video game news. Uh, how would you describe Game Informer? 
Uh, I'm old school. You know, I've been doing this 22, 23 years. So I still see us first as a print publication, you know, a physical good that people get in their mailboxes. Uh, but also now, you know, we're online. We have daily news like you guys. Uh, we have podcasts, video casts, and now we've just added uh, in the last few years digital versions of the magazine on, you know, computer, tablets. We just a couple weeks ago just launched the phone version. So it is everything and uh, kind of an all-encompassing uh, way for, for people to get their video game news. Now, you said that you're a real veteran here. You've been doing this for 20 years. What was video game journalism like 20 years ago? Oh, we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, we were making it up as we went. A lot of game journalists, you know, we didn't come from, like, college as writers, you know, with degrees. We were plucked out from stores. You know, people saw us as gamers. So a lot of people that were at Game Informer, Game Pro, a game fan, EGM, you name it, were gamers first. And we kind of made it up as we went. Uh, everybody had kind of different ideas of what that should be. Uh, and I still think we're learning today, you know, from, from real publications. But, uh, and I think we have a pretty good foothold now. But, yeah, it was a lot of experimentation back in the day. And uh, it was kind of the Wild West of, of journalism for, for a new medium that was just starting to kind of come up. Everybody kind of saw it as this toy for kids still at that time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we kind of grew up that way. And then it kind of exploded into this new, huge entertainment medium that, someday could take on movies, you know, uh, and it was for everyone. So it was a big transition there. But early on, you know, it was it was really just people making it up as they went. I talked before about the only real place for a lot of kids growing up was to grab that issue of GI. Mm -hmm. Do you still remember, again, those days of what it meant when you and some of the other uh, burgeoning publications were essentially almost the only news source for video games? Yeah, there was no internet. I mean, it, a lot of you probably never grew up with no internet, like having an outlet for news right on your phone or, or a tablet. So it was what came in your mailbox. You know, we'd be shocked by we'd get an issue of EGM, and they'd have a game like, uh, what was it, Star Wars Masters of Terrace Kasi on the cover. Okay. That was the first place we ever heard of that. And for that full month, we're just like, oh, my God, how do they get this? That's amazing. A new Star Wars game is coming. Uh, but that was it. You know, there was there was no like immediate reaction to it online. There was no social media or anything like that. So for that month, that was it. You know, people would get hungry for one week away. The new Game Informer is coming. The new G EGM's coming. Uh, what's going to be on the cover? So it was it was special back then. You know, you had mm -hmm. newspapers and stuff like that, but they did not look at video games at all. Uh, they could care less about what was going on unless there were some big sales milestones, right? Like for mm -hmm. consoles or whatever. Um, but they, they, they had no one reviewing games or anything like that. You could only get it from these publications. And you at Game Informer are one of the only publications now that still relies so heavily on the magazine. You said in the intro you still consider it very much the paper product that you're right. giving. That's 25 years ago. In 2016, 2017, how is Game Informer still able to operate with that in mind? It seems to be kind of the golden ticket that every newspaper yeah. wants to understand. We've had tons of newspapers just in Toronto having to fold over and make huge layoffs because of that. How did something so you know small, when you think about it, a lot of people aren't aware of video games, how are you able to make that work? Yeah, so we have over 6 million subscribers still. A lot of those are what we kind of call legacy readers that keep coming back, resubscribing. 
but it really, the ball really got rolling. You know, we were sold exclusively, well, not exclusively, we were on newsstands too, but uh, we were partnered with and owned by Funko Land. So we were in Funko stores and they were selling that to consumers. But the ball really got rolling for us when we got bought by Barnes & Noble, uh, who invested a lot of money in us, saw something really good there and let us expand, you know, from a saddle stitch magazine. If you don't know what that is, that's with staples from like 60 pages to having a spine, you know, the glued spine and having however many pages we wanted back then. It was, it was just kind of like, what do you guys need? Make it look great, cover everything, be the all encompassing video game news outlet. And that's where it just started to take off. Like I remember we hit 500,000 subscribers and we were going bonkers. Cause that's like where EGM and game pro, that was kind of the high, the high point back then. And then the next thing, no, the next number I heard was like 1.5 million. I was like, oh my goodness, this is getting out of control. Yeah. And and when you hear that, you're you're kind of like, you double check your work, you triple check your work. You don't want a typo or a mistake going out to that many people. And then I think our high, we got over eight million at one point, and we've kind of regressed a little bit to to about six. And there's a good mix between print and uh, uh, digital now. I mean, we have millions of digital subscribers uh, for for you know that version of the magazine. But I think the big secret for us is getting those big cover stories, getting those exclusive looks at games, whether it's a first look or like we just had Mass Effect on the cover, you know, a big deep dive into that. Gamers want that. And yes, you know, we're, we're tied with GameStop. They help uh, move our publication out. We probably wouldn't be where we are today without them. But it is those big stories. And I think that's something gamers are still hungry for is learning about what these games are and knowing that what's on the cover is probably something that that. that they're going to want to look forward to. You touched on it right there, the cover stories. What exactly is this concept, and why do you think it has been so successful? Again, you, you just grazed it. For people that aren't aware of Game Informer, what do you guys do with your cover stories that I don't think a lot of other uh, gaming journalism outlets do? Yeah, I mean, we dedicate uh, a good 12, 14, 16, sometimes 20 pages uh, to one game and really blow it out as much as we can. We spend a couple of days with the development team. You know, we go to these game development studios to see how these games are getting made and see what they have there, you know, whether it's seeing, you know, a first level or walking around the studio talking to artists and stuff like that. We get a really deep dive uh, into these games that you just don't see on daily news sites. Uh, and I think that's something that really makes us special and we have the vehicle that that can kind of move that in print and make that something that can sit on your table uh your coffee table or uh you know a lot of people in their bathroom uh, <laughs> that you can sit down read and really kind of sink uh sink your teeth into and, and you know get a good sense of what this new game is going to be when we look at a, a career of 25 years 20 years working in this industry and, and looking how it changes. We've, I think there's a lot of talk about how the gaming industry has changed. There's so many people tracking that. In terms of how the covering of that industry has changed, what do you think is, I guess, one of the biggest, if not the biggest difference for making stories and content about video games today than, you know, back when GI was just kind of starting and you could rely on uh, that one magazine as being the source? Uh, you got to be immediate. I think that's the thing now. It's like, uh, I'll take you through. I was just at PlayStation Experience in Anaheim, California this last weekend for uh, uh, to see the PlayStation Showcase and check out all the new games. And I went and checked out Crash Bandicoot, which was kind of funny, the, the new Crash Bandicoot remaster that's coming. 
And I remembered seeing that game for the first time at E3 in 1996 and talking to Jason Rubin about that game. And he interrupted my interview right away to tell me that Shigeru Miyamoto had just come by and played the game. He was so excited. And then I flash forward 20 years, you know, this is exactly 20 years almost. uh, And here I am covering Crash Bandicoot again. But back in the day, after I talked to Jason, I had my notes. I took that, flew that back to Minneapolis where we're based. And I had a couple weeks to write that up, you know, really do a nice job in that article. 20 years later, I see that game. I immediately go over to a Wi-Fi hotspot, start typing about it, put it online. So you don't get the time to put as much care and thought into your articles, but you are bringing it to your readers faster. Uh, and for us, you know, one thing that kind of sucks is like, okay, I just wrote this article for print or for online. Now I have to write a completely different one for print to serve that audience, which is an article where, again, I can put a couple of, of weeks into and make sure it's uh, as good as I want it to be. So, yeah, there is that immediate thing where you just got to get the news out there as soon as it happens. Do you think that shift of really taking time, analyzing, providing insight into a new news story versus just getting it out right away? Because it's something that's felt in, I think, all forms of news, whether it's mainstream or focusing on video games. Do you, th- do you ever worry that the allocation of resources is too much to one side or the other? Because it, there is a concern, I think, of maybe one day those cover stories not being there, the real deep looks having right. to go on the back burner just because, you know, you need to be present. You need to be there with news that is happening now. Looking at a Game Informer, you know, what is your policy on that? I would hate to see that that go away. You know, there are other websites out there that will do, you know, big, extensive feature kind of stories, send their article out there, have them be embedded at a studio, something like that. Uh, you even see Jeff Keeley kind of do the final hours every once in a while. Uh, I would hate to see that go. And one of my concerns about online reporting in general, and, I mean, you can even go from politics to, to game journalism, is, accuracy and and making mistakes and when you are rushing stuff out there there's a chance you're going to be giving the wrong story right like you might be uh giving a wrong number or attributing the wrong person and uh or even just something even worse than that you know getting a story completely wrong in a headline uh you see that happen a lot too where it's just the wrong message whereas in print you get the time to vet that that kind of stuff double check your facts do all that stuff uh, i think it's the more trustworthy way of getting news, but mm-hmm. it is, it is kind of the dinosaur, right? Like it is mm-hmm. slow lumbering. It takes a month to get to your house. And a lot of times when we deliver stuff, it's, you might've read all that stuff online weeks ago, you know? So uh, that that's kind of the game we play. That's the dance we have of trying to find new stuff or, you know, a lot of our magazine now is unique editorials, you know, opposed mm-hmm. to just game previews or reviews. We still have that stuff, but we are trying to look for those big stories that we can bring that, the kind of reporting that you don't often see online. Again, speaking with Andrew Reiner, executive editor of Game Informer, we talked before about that time period, that 20 years, uh, or more than 20 years, of the magazine and the online affiliation operating. You talked before about how it kind of started as people looking at it like twice, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Do you think now how uh, games are 
reviewed, examined, and analyzed. Do you think we've moved away from this just being a consumer product, you know, more than just the benefits of a toaster and closer to you know, something that we would see in movies or in, in in literature? You've had your finger on the pulse with that. Are we there yet or do we still look at them like we would, you know, the fancy new fridge that's coming in? <laughs> I think as journalists and as fans, I think we're there. You know, we see a lot of stories now going into like diversity in games, you know, key topics that are a part of our society today are integral to games as well. Um, but then at the same time, you can't just say that's all it is, you know, is moving forward or, you know, being more mature because you have games like Splatoon that comes out, you know, that's just fun. That is just your kind of kid's game, right? Like I know adults play it as well, but there isn't a big narrative behind that game. So that is covered in a different way. I think it's grown in terms of the number of stories we can have, you know, games like The Last of Us, you know, those those are games you can have hour, I mean, you guys might have done one yourselves, you know, hour, yes, two hour long <laughs> conversations about of just dissecting what that game was and what it meant. So I think we have better storytelling today, for sure. You know, back in the Super Nintendo days, it was a screen of text. That was your story. You had to read about it in the manual sometimes that mm-hmm. came with the game. That's where you got your lore. Uh, so I think games have really matured in, in that way and gone the right way in in giving us a new way of absorbing stories and being a part of those stories. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Nintendo is really still kind of honed in on making these games for families uh, that aren't that deep, where you just pop it in and, hey, that guy grew because he ate a mushroom. That's that's about as deep as it gets. Mm-hmm. We talked about so much what games are, and I would love to know from your perspective, uh, what have you thought about some of the, I'd say in the last three or four years, more honed criticism of game journalism and the ethical responsibility? You guys have been around for so long. You're tied into uh, the retail of GameStop that can push it in different ways. What right. has been your response to people claiming now? And it's it's also kind of exciting that people are, I guess, wanting to ask more from the people that are giving them news. But you guys have that big tie-in. You've been around for so long you know, what is uh, the Game Informer response to that? Uh, in terms of us, you know, being criticized, like you said, with GameStop, I just wish people would talk to us first. <laughs> You'll see these stories go out or, or these just kind of criticisms go out and nobody talks to us. We've had dozens of people or dozen plus people that are spread out throughout the industry that have worked at Game Informer that are other places, you know, from Phil Kohler uh, to Dan Reichert at Giant Bomb. They know how things work talk to them they're not associated with us there's nothing going on at game informer other than people covering games you know we've rarely ever hear from from gamestop at all uh on the editorial and you know we have our freedom and um i think we cover things the right way you know we really do put a lot of effort into what we do and a lot of thought into what we do so that always hurts when we just see these these criticisms get thrown out there, yet no one's doing the research, really. Do you think that is a problem, uh, though, in the industry? Is that something that is made up, or is there really some weight to the idea that you know some of the popular publications aren't doing their due diligence and or maybe there's more going on than uh, consumers realize? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people just immediately re- respond to something, whether it's on Twitter, social media, or a blog site, uh, with just kind of their hot take on it. And they don't really do their research on it. Yeah, I think that's a real thing that's going on. I think that's one of the biggest problems we have is, as you know, uh, a gaming outlet for people is just people not doing 
the proper amount of research. I, I hammer on my guys all the time, our staff all the time, like do your research, do your fact checking. You know, that's, that's how you become known and do your thing well, you know, when people can rely on you to be truthful. Uh, and, you know, these people just aren't going out there and asking. And, yeah, I think that's a problem. But in terms of other issues going on, yeah, I think we are seeing some really good critiques and, and uh, people bringing up some really good issues for us to explore. You know, whether that is just someone saying one thing and 140 characters on Twitter that spark sparks the, uh, you know, the ideas of, of other journalists to explore these kind of things or someone taking the time to write a really expensive, uh, extensive and kind of meaty article about uh, a key issue that, that we should be looking at, whether that's, you know, things from game developers being worked too hard. You know, you hear about Naughty Dog, you know, how many hours they work to other things about you know how gender and race and all that stuff are, are portrayed in games i think all that stuff is very meaningful and stuff we should explore and try to uh you know approve upon as a medium one of the i think most common questions that we get here whenever we have people calling in it's the idea of how can we get a job talking about <laughs> games we love games so and i can't even imagine how many hundreds of thousands of times You've had to hear that over the years as this has been growing. Again, in 2016, I work at a radio station. You work in predominantly uh, print media, and we get to talk and deal with games. It's traditional media talking about non-traditional things. What is advice that you would give to people growing up that want to do this, that like what you've done, and want to be part of that uh, oh-so-select group? Well, if you have a voice like yours, I would say go into radio. <laughs> if you have a voice like mine, go into print. You know, that's, there we that's go. kind of the, there's one deciding factor. But the one thing I would say is write, write, write as much as you can. If you want to be a game journalist or uh, a YouTube star or whatever it is now, you know, an influencer, whatever we call them, uh, just keep doing what they do and, and practice, practice, practice. You know, that's, I'm still learning things today as a writer 20-some years later. Uh, I know that's crazy to say, but I'll read someone's story and be like, wow, I like how they, they uh, broke these sentences up or what grammar they used in it. Uh, but to get your foot in the door, there are so many avenues now today. Back in the day, it used to be, you know, go to college, hone your craft. And now it's like you could have a blog on your craft there. But a big thing I'm seeing is, and at Game Informer as well, like we'll get resumes from people applying for jobs from harvard and all of these elite schools but their writing samples are kind of lifeless right where yes they have the chops they learned how to do it but it really isn't their thing you know it's maybe they should be pursuing a different kind of writing than game writing it's it's just not clicking there uh whereas i'll read something online from a blog nobody's ever heard of and it's a brilliant piece by someone that he's just out of high school like this kid really gets it uh so we don't just, you know, kind of pluck from experience or anything like that. We look for the best writing samples. So if you think you're a good writer, get it out there. Have people read it. Have people critique it. Critique it. Your friends, other journalists. You know, if you send me, you know, direct messages on Twitter, I'll look at that stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of journalists will. It's a, it's a pretty small community uh, in terms of, of game writers and we're all communicating together on, on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. So get your foot in that door. That is probably the best door you can get in today is through social media. Uh, and we've hired a number of people, uh, whether it's interns or writers themselves that we first learned about on uh, social media. Phil, uh, Phil Kohler is one of them. 
Mm. Uh, I saw him on Twitter. I got to know him on Twitter, and I was like, this kid gets it, right? Like, he really gets it. In 140 characters, he always has a good take on stuff. I like that. Uh, and that's we hired him mo- mostly from that. You know, I got to see his writing samples, and I saw his extended work was just as good as his, his tweeting. And uh, you'd be surprised, you know, just taking two minutes on Twitter could really impress someone. So there you go, kids. If your family's upset you're on Twitter all the time, just say it's for your career. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andy Reiner, executive editor of uh, Game of Forward. Just finally, before we go, mm-hmm. 20 years. I've mentioned it so often. I don't want you to feel old, but so long in this industry, Game Informer has been around. Where do you think the next 20 years is going to take this industry uh, that we love so much of just looking at games? How do you think it's going to change and adapt? A year ago, I would have said it might be virtual reality, but I don't know now. It it seems like developers are really timid, and I I fear that that's going to kind of burn out here before it really gets a chance to show us what it's capable of. But I think the big thing I'm looking forward to is big AAA games continuing to survive and become more dynamic, whether that's games like Skyrim, or games that Naughty Dog makes like Uncharted and Last of Us, I think that is going to be a big pulse of the of the industry in ter- in telling unique stories. You know, finding that that kind of niche like movies. It took decades for movies to really find its pulse. I think we're just on the cusp of becoming a huge storytelling medium. So that's my guess is that we're going to kind of have a storytelling boom coming up here in a bit. Uh, you know, games like Bioshock and Last of Us won't be unique. I think that's going to kind of become a standard moving forward. Uh, but we'll see. You never know. Maybe indies take over, uh, as has been the case the last couple of years, where they're just everywhere. But we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping my favorite games are the big AAA ones, so I'm, I'm hoping that's where we go. But you never know. Big thanks again, Andrew Reiner. This is VGS Talk Radio, AM 640. Big thank you again to Andrew Reiner from Game Informer for extolling his wisdom of nearly a quarter of a century in this world of video games. Who knows what will come, what will pass. VR didn't exactly work out, but uh, I'm worried about these YouTubers. Maybe I'm just an old person. You say that like VR is dead. It's still just starting. VR <laughs> is dead. Uh, <laughs> thank you again, of course, Liam Brand, Zach Fanning, Thomas Hyde, and we got Christian in the house tonight. Very Ooh. unlikely. And Jesse is always taking pictures of food as we try to <laughs> do work here. Richard Jellison with his Dead Rising 4 review and talk. If you're interested in this content, make sure you look us up online. Brand man, take it away. Oh, we are at YouTube at Video Game Sophistry. <laughs> and it's great. Lots right. of good video content. Tons of it. I'm glad to know that we're at YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, Andy, you put up a big uh, 2,000th video video. Yeah, yeah. You get yeah. to see us talking about 2,000 videos. It's crazy. Kind of crazy. We got to go, though, next week. It'll be our best of what we loved about this year. It's an important show next week. It's our last one of 2016. Could be our last one ever. So we really uh, want to push it. Uh, thank you again. Oh, thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Without a doubt, the worst episode ever. Rest assured that I was on the internet within minutes, registering my disgust throughout the world.